Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. So the Starship exploded. Uh, it happened all during a cryogenic pressure test at SpaceX Boca Chica. And you know what the worst part is? This only happened one day after Mark 1 Starship testing started. But don't worry, because SpaceX is going to focus on developing advanced prototypes rather than just repairing this Mark 1 Starship. As SpaceX representative said, the purpose of today's test was to pressurize systems to the max, so the outcome wasn't completely unexpected. Uh, there were no injuries, nor is this a serious setback. Uh, and as Elon tweeted, uh, the Mark 1 served as a valuable manufacturing pathfinder, but flight design is quite different, and the decision's already been made not to fly this thing. Uh, it's just a test article, and the team's now focusing on Mark 3 builds, which are designed for orbit. But let's go back even more. Let's go back to late September. You'll remember SpaceX's unveiling, and this was the Mark 1 ship. This was the one that was built. Uh, it was 165 foot tall, and it's probably more important uh, to have it fail before people go on this thing. I mean, it's easier to nail down and fix faults way in advance like this. And uh, during the presentation uh, back in September, Musk said that the Mark 1 would fly on crewed test flights only to an altitude of about 12 miles, uh, and then perhaps before the end of the year. But it's pretty clear that's not on the table anymore. But over on Twitter, Elon had someone asking, uh, you know, with Mark 1, did you learn enough with it? And Elon said, absolutely, but move to Mark 3 design. This had some value as a manufacturing pathfinder, but flight design is quite different. And SpaceX sounds like they're really trying to just move off to Mark 3, and that adds up a little bit with what Elon said earlier about Mark 2, which also is just kind of for perfecting Starship production. So Mark 2 is actually still under construction over at SpaceX facility in Florida, and like Mark 1 and Mark 2, they both sport uh, SpaceX's next generation Raptor engines, and the final Starship is going to be powered by six. The Super Heavy, which is the main stage, is going to have 37. And we have to remember that Starship's going to be capable of carrying 100 passengers to the Moon, Mars, or, like I've said, from Earth to Earth locations. But Mars is certainly high on that destination list. Uh, SpaceX has specifically been developing this ship to go to Mars. We're going to be making humanity colonize the Red Planet. It's unclear at the moment how much Mark 1's anomaly will set back uh, the overall Starship test program, but SpaceX is working on an ambitious timeline, uh, so they might still be able to meet their deadlines. Uh, the final operational Starship still could launch as early as 2021. And SpaceX President and Chief Operating Officer Gwen Shotwell said that the company aimed to have Starship ready to make uncrewed deliveries to the surface of the moon by 2022. 
So, you know, we're only about one or two years away from that. Uh, and in the space industry, that's kind of like next month. Blue Origin, we're going to talk a little bit about Blue Origin. They just won a favourable ruling last week from the Government Accountability Office, or for short, the GAO, uh, in its protest of the Air Force's launch contract rules. However, the GAO dismissed the outright claim that the Air Force set out terms that discriminate completely against emerging competitors in the space launch industry. The GAO took into consideration Blue Origin's objection, uh, especially when it came to the evaluation of criteria laid out in the request for proposals, the RFP, which is issued by the Air Force for National Security Space Launch, which is NSSL. There's a lot of abbreviations here. Um, but the Air Force said that the RFP uh, will only select two providers whose proposals, when combined, offered the best value for the government. Uh, but those two providers will split the launch, uh, so 60-40 over the next five-year contract. And the GAO rules that evaluating independent bids as pairs is unreasonable and inconsistent with procurement laws. Following the GAO's decision, uh, the Air Force said they would remove that clause and evaluate each proposal to its own merit. Uh, so Blue Origin, Northrop, and SpaceX in the ULA are now all competing for those two slots. And what's surprising is the GAO doesn't accept many protests. Like, for example, 15% of the cases, only 15% of them, uh, just in 2018, were actually dealt in a favourable way, uh, where the protesters got what they wanted. So this is a really big slap for the Air Force. Aerospace and Defence Industry Consultant Jim McLeese of Jim McLeese Associates called the GAO's decision a perfect victory for Blue Origin. Uh, what the company sought after and did not get was a ruling that objected the Air Force strategy to award a five-year contract to two providers. McLeese said, I believe they really wanted a three-award outcome. But now that that's gone, they're really going to need to sharpen their pencils now. So Blue Origin claimed that awarding Phase 2 contracts to 2020 favours really only ULA and SpaceX, which already have certified vehicles and launch infrastructure. So Blue Origin also alleged that the Air Force undermined the company's efforts because of the cost-sharing agreements, and the GAO disagreed. Uh, and they said, while Blue Origin may be at a disadvantage because it is currently working to develop, test, and certify its launch system as compared to firms that already have secured certification, this does not mean the agency is improperly restricting competition. In this regard, the fact a requirement may be burdensome or even impossible for a particular firm to find does not make it objectionable if the requirement properly reflects the agency's needs. They then went on to say this does not have to delay satisfying its own needs in order to allow the particular offerer time to develop the ability to meet government requirements. So enough of that, how about we talk about NASA? Because this is a great update. So NASA has just announced Blue Origin, which are in Kent, Washington, Ceres Robotics in Palo Alto, California, Ceres Nevada Corporation in Louisville, Colorado, SpaceX in Hawthorne, California, and Tivac Nanosatellite Systems in Irvine, California, are all joining its Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or the CLPS. So the five companies can now compete for commercial lander contracts to deliver robotic payloads to the lunar surface for NASA. And this is helping pave the way for a return of astronauts to the moon by 2024. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said American aerospace companies of all sizes are joining the Artemis program. 
He then said, expanding the group of companies who are eligible to bid on sending payloads to the moon's surface drives innovation and reduces costs to NASA and American taxpayers. We anticipate opportunities to deliver a wide range of science and technology payloads to make our vision of lunar exploration a reality and advance our goal of sending humans to explore Mars. And the five companies uh, joined nine others that were selected uh, by the CLPS in November 2018. So that now brings the total number of private Moonlander hopefuls to 14 firms. So they include the Moonlander concepts of all sizes. They range even from the Starship, uh, which is SpaceX's big vehicle uh, to launch it, and to land multiple rovers on the moon, uh, off to smaller probes like little boxy concepts from the proposed TIVAC nanosatellite systems. Thomas Saburchin, who's NASA's Associate Administrator of Science Mission Directoriate, said the CLPS initiative was designed to leverage an expertise and innovation of private industry to get to the moon quickly. Then saying, as we build a steady cadence of deliveries, we expand our ability to do new science on the lunar surface, develop new technologies, and support human exploration objectives. Like Blue Origin's lander concept, that's based on the Blue Moon uncrewed vehicle, uh, which the company's billionaire founder Jeff Bezos announced earlier this year. Then you've got Sierra Space Corp uh, and Sarah's Robotics, uh, which are developing mid-sized landers that could potentially be scaled up uh, for larger vehicles. And NASA's planning to use these private moon landers to build partners, companies, and all of that to deliver rovers like the agency's new Volatiles Investigation Polar Exploration Rover, or VIPER for short, uh, to the moon's south pole. And you've got other payloads uh, that could be sent, like power stations, scientific experiments, and other lunar infrastructure. So NASA plans to spend about $2.6 billion on the CLPS uh, through to November 2028. And the agency officials say that the 14 companies currently in the program can bid on any of NASA's delivery services. And in July, NASA awarded the first three contracts under the program to three landers. So this is really going to help, especially with the Artemis program that aims to put the first woman and the next man on the lunar surface by 2024. And then you've got this sustained presence, and that's going to be 2028. And then we've got 2030 for Mars. So this is really a great step. And now there's so many companies involved in this, it's definitely going to become a reality. So here's a really cool one. So SpaceX is going to launch a payload for a client called NanoRax uh, aboard one of its new rideshare missions. And currently it's targeting late 2020. Again, very, very close. And that's going to demonstrate a very ambitious piece of new tech uh, from the commercial space company. Uh, so NanoRax is sending up a payload platform that will show off how it can use its small robot to cut material very similar to the upper stages used in an orbital spacecraft. So something NanoCrafts wants to be able to do is eventually convert these spent and discarded stages, sometimes called space tugs, because they generally moved around payloads from one area to another in orbit, and they want to make this into a kind of a, like a research station. So they want to bring new life to it. So the demonstration is part of the Space Outpost program, which aims to address the future needs for in-space orbital commercial platforms by simultaneously making the use of existing vehicles and materials designed specifically for space. Through the use of upper stages of spacecraft left behind in orbit, the company hopes to show how it might maybe one day be able to greatly reduce the costs of setting up a space station and habitats by broadening its potential access 
these kind of facilities for commercial space companies. And it really could be a key technology, not for just establishing a more permanent research facility in Earth's orbit, but also for setting up infrastructure to help us go and stay at other interplanetary destinations like the Moon, like Mars. NanoRex has a really good track record, especially when it comes to delivering all of this stuff when it comes to space station technology. And it's the first company to own and operate its own hardware on the International Space Station. And it's accomplished quite a lot since its founding back in 2009. Uh, the first demo mission was also funded via contract in place with NASA. But if you really think about it, yeah, I know we've got reusable rockets and we're probably not going to be discarding as much as we have been up to this point with payloads going up to the ISS. But what if you had a used like a starship, which is a massive vessel, and you connected them all together? You could now have something pretty incredible put together. Maybe these tugs or these kind of delivery containers that get discarded might be designed specifically to be reused in the creation of like a, a separate space station. So this is going to be really cool and it also reduces space junk, which is fantastic. What's not so fantastic is China's space agency, because they launched two new navigational satellites into orbit Saturday, which, you know, that was great, that's fantastic actually, but it just so happened to send the booster segments crashing into a settlement back here on Earth, so that was not so great. Uh, so while the long March 3B rocket uh, successfully delivered its satellite into orbit, the boosters from its three-stage rocket appeared to have crashed into a settlement downrange from the Zhejiang launch site. And I've seen the pictures and videos for this, so I definitely recommend you go and check it out as well. But it really shows like buildings on fire, damage everywhere, there's debris from the long March 3B rocket, so it's really incredible. And while to us it seems like, you know, this is kind of weird, uh, apparently for the residents this is a normal thing. Uh, China's first three-stage launch sites were built deep inland, so that means that their boosters, instead of what we're used to, you know, when America or something launches, it goes in the ocean. Well, not with China, it will land over land. And China's been ramping up its space launches uh, very recently even. So these impacts near towns, they're starting to become more and more often. Two Bidu satellites uh, launched Saturday are the 50th and 51st satellites of their kind as part of the Bidu 3 system, according to China's state-run Xinhao News Service. They serve as global positioning satellite networks over China. But these residents, and this came from a journalist in there called Andrew Jones, these residents are in the calculated drop zones. They're apparently kind of evacuated beforehand, but they're warned this is not a safe area to live. And then you kind of see these videos, which is like amateur footage of the boosters falling out from the sky, and it's really just insane. According to Jones, the warnings sent to residents in a drop zone include key safety instructions. So the notice instructs people to go to safe zones ahead of the launch, to not approach the wreckage if they find it due to the harmful effects that the residual propellant might have. But this really, just for air quality, this is really toxic stuff that's burning. And it's so good that we're now moving towards reusable rockets because this kind of situation will not happen with a reusable rocket unless something catastrophic happens. But let's talk about Jupiter and more specifically Jupiter's moon. A team led by researchers out of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center has confirmed traces of water vapor above the surface of Jupiter's icy moon Europa. And you know, what's the big deal of that? It's a tiny space rock, and what, what's the point? Well, it's actually one of the highest priorities for NASA's research, uh, because there's a high chance that there's extraterrestrial life 
underneath the ice layer. Lead researcher and NASA planetary scientist Lucas Pagani said, While scientists have not yet detected liquid directly, we have found the next best thing, water in vapor form. Uh, and according to the paper published in the Journal of Natural Astronomy on Monday, the NASA team discovered enough water vapor being released from Europa to fill an entire Olympic-sized swimming pool within minutes. So although that sounds like a lot, it was only just enough to be detected from Earth. So out of the 17 observations by the WM Keck Observatory in Hawaii, which uses a spectrograph to detect chemical compositions of other planets' atmospheres by detecting infrared light and how it releases and absorbs, the scientists were only able to spot water vapor in one spot. And in Pagani and his team's report, it said, We suggest that the outgassing of water vapor on Europa occurs at lower levels than previously estimated, with only rare localized events of stronger activity. And for many years, scientists have always suspected that there's water on Europa's surface, and several observations appear to back that up now. Uh, but for more than two decades ago, uh, NASA's Galileo spacecraft found evidence of an electrically conductive fluid on the moon's surface. And then in 2018, an analysis of the data found an evidence of a massive plume of liquid. And then on top of all of that, data previously collected by the NASA Hubble Space Telescope supported the existence of the plumes. Avi Mandel, who's a planetary scientist at Goddard, said, We performed diligent safety checks to remove possible contaminants in ground-based observations, but eventually we'll have to get closer to Europa to see what's really going on. Uh, so a mission to do that's actually already lined up. So NASA's upcoming Europa Clipper mission will be able to do that. It's going to get up much closer to the icy moon's surface, and that's going to happen as soon as 2023. So the spacecraft will feature suites of cameras, spectrometers, and radar to investigate the thickness of Europa's icy shell, and it's going to have 45 flybys. And it's probably going to bring back a lot of insight, especially when it comes to this water vapor above the moon's surface. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.